Well, we are more than halfway through our study in the book of Revelation. We finished up chapter 13 last week. Now, before we jump into chapter 14, and I get this thing fastened on my wrist, you know what it means when a preacher looks at his watch, right? Not a thing. That's why I have two of them on. Now, remember the church, we're the believers. We're not going to be here for anything that happens after chapter 4. We get raptured at the end of chapter 3. So why do we care about what happens after that? Because we're not going to be here, right? Well, there's a couple of reasons. The one, the first, Bible says we need to understand what the Bible says about things. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All Scripture, not just the parts that we like, Right? Not just Psalm 23, not just Isaiah 40, 40, verse 11. We did a sermon on this verse a while ago, but suffice it to say that we always benefit from studying every aspect of God's Word. If it weren't important, God wouldn't have written it down. And then 2 Timothy 2, 15 says, now this was written to preachers, but I believe it is applicable to everybody. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the word of truth. Our study of God's word just can't be superficial. Just like one verse a day and that's it. We need to get into the weeds sometime of what God's word says. And we, study, we, don't, get, we don't study to show yourself approved unto anybody else. It doesn't matter. I mean, it does matter to me, but you don't do it for me. You don't do it for your spouse. You don't do it for your kids. The Bible says, study to show yourself approved unto God. So only you and God know how much you're studying. And we study to get God's approval. The second reason is there is a blessing to be received when we study this particular book. Way back at the beginning, and we said this, Revelation 1.3 says, Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. Okay, that's me. So I'm going to get blessed. And blessed are those who hear it, and that's you, but, and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Out of the 66 books, this is the only one that says there's a blessing from reading and studying this particular book. It's one that we always want to shy away from because it's so symbolic and mysterious, right? Well, I want that blessing, and I think you all want that blessing too. So we're going to jump right in at chapter 14. And it says this. If I get my pages now. Revelation 14, starting in verse 1, says, Then I saw the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roaring of a great waterfall or the rolling of mighty thunder. It was like the sound of many harplets, harpists playing together. This great choir sang a wonderful new song in front of the throne of God and before the four living beings and the 24 elders. And no one could learn this song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. For they are spiritually undefiled, pure as virgins, following the Lamb wherever He goes. They have been purchased from among the people on the earth and as a special offering to, the, to God and to the Lamb. No falsehood could be charged against them. They are blameless." Now, notice the contrast between this chapter 
and what happened at the end of chapter 13. Chapter 13 was a sad picture of death, starvation, and the mark of the beast. But now we, he, we see a picture of a glorious victory. Now the second thing is, we, this is not a direct chronological following of chapter 13. This doesn't, it wasn't written in chronological what's going to happen. This is actually a prophetic jump or a vision given to John to see what's going to happen near the end. It's going to show the rewards of those who remain faithful to Christ during the time. 14 and 15 are introduced the judgments that are coming in chapters 15 or 16 through 18. But this is kind of a, a little respite to show you what's going to happen after all of that. So let's go verse by verse. Verse 1 says, Then I saw the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, if you read commentaries, you're going to find that there's different speculations of who this 144,000 are. Um, a lot of people, which I did originally, thought this was the 144,000 from chapter 7. But as you study it, it's, it's not. Most others believe it's the believers of all time. And that 144,000 is not an exact number, but a representative number. They believe it's a number of fullness. But in either case, God ha always has faithful people, regardless of how wicked the world becomes. Now, the Bible says that in the last days, people's hearts are going to wax cold. They're not going to want to be around things of God. The numbers of believers are going to fall off. I think we saw that in the past decade or so. There is a thing called cultural Christianity. How many have ever heard of that? Cultural Christianity is when you went to church because it was the thing to do. And you went there because maybe you made some business contacts there, or maybe you had some friends there. You didn't really care about the sermon or the church, but you, you had a good time while you were here. Well, in the past decade or so, that has kind of fallen off. The people that go to church now, for the most part, want to go to church. They want to be there for what God has for them. If they went because it was just something to do or they had friends there, things in the world has drawn them away from that. So now we're down to, hopefully, the folks that are here want to be here. And they want to hear what God has for them. But in the last days, when it gets more difficult to serve God, in other words, there's going to be persecution, that's also going to thin the church out. We're going to, are we going to stand for Christ in that time or not? We're going to walk away. Now we go on to verse 2. It says, And I heard a sound from heaven like the roaring of a great waterfall or the rolling of mighty thunder. Now verse 1 refers to Mount Zion, but there's two referenced in the Bible. There's an earthly one, and there's a heavenly one. The Bible talks about those in Hebrews 12.22 says, Now you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to thousands of angels in the joyful assembly. Now verse 2 tells us, continue looking at that, it says, I heard a sound from heaven. So it appears that John is no longer in heaven. He's on earth looking up to heaven. So I'm thinking that he would be on earth when it states something like that. And it says in verse 2, I heard a sound from heaven, not where I'm at, the roaring of a great waterfall and the rolling of thunder. So I believe that he's on earth hearing that from heaven. Verse 15 in Revelation, it describes those terms again. It says, His feet were as bright as bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like the mighty ocean waves. 
Then Revelation 6, 1 says, And I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. So we believe that John's on earth experiencing this, and the voices he's hearing is from the heavenly Jerusalem, not so much the earthly, or the heavenly Mount Zion, not so much the earthly Mount Zion. Verse 2 goes on, Like the sound of many harpists playing together, this great choir sang a wonderful new song in front of the throne of God and before the four living beings and the 24 elders. So it says they're singing a new song. And if you reference that, you look it up, it is a new song in tune. In other words, the melody of the song is different. But the lyrics of the song most likely represent sentiments of songs that have gone on before. It wasn't a totally new lyrical song. And we have that today. I'll give you an example. We use this on Wednesday night. The song, This is Amazing Grace. We sung it before. Different song. Not the same as Amazing Grace, the original. Different lyrics, different tune. But the theme of the song is the same as the original song. So the music is different, but we're singing something that we've already sung before. And most most every worship song we sing, if it's a new tune, it represents the same thought that we've been singing for thousands of years. The resurrection, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the glory of God. All those are referenced in pretty much every worship song we sing. The, the melody is different. So when these angels or these choirs, these harpists are playing, it's a new song musically, but representing old history from the New Testament. In a sense, and it's new in the sense that they, their experience in God is new, in contrast to the experience of those under the old covenant. I think we talked about this on Wednesday as well. When you sing a song, we may have mentioned this earlier, when you sing a song continually over and over again, it kind of loses its meaning because you sing it because you've memorized the lyrics. And you're not really thinking about the lyrics as you sing them. And sometimes we need to have a new song or new tune in order to get our attention to the lyrics. Like the first song we sang today, powerful lyrics. We don't want to get to the point where we just sing them out of rote. We want to sing them because we mean them and we want God's spirit to move. We want to sing them as if it's the first time. And when, so when they're singing this new song, it's a contrast to what they've sung under the Old Testament, which is the same thing over and over again. And even though John could hear it supposedly on earth, the songs were being sung to God. They weren't for the benefit of those on the earth. It was a benefit for those in heaven. That's, but John was able to hear that. And verse three, uh, 3 says, And no one could learn this song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. For they are spiritually undefiled, pure as virgins, following the Lamb wherever he goes. They have been purchased from among the people of the earth as a special offering to God and the Lamb. No falsehood could be charged against them. They are blameless. Now, notice they are not the angels doing the singing. These are literal people doing the singing. Why? Because angels aren't being redeemed. They can't be redeemed. They are not the recipients of salvation. They're not the ones who are purchased by the blood of Christ. Those terms only apply to mankind. Angels can't be saved. Angels can't be redeemed. But when they're singing, they're singing things about themselves. So the words that they're singing there applies to mankind. So it's human beings that are singing. And then again, it loses to 144,000, all of them being believers. And all the singers 
were actually harpists. So all of them were singing and playing at the same time. The term spiritually undefiled means they have remained pure by refusing to conform to the world's system. Right now, the church is the bride of Christ, right? And as such, we are to be spiritually pure before God. What's that mean? That means you can't worship anything else. If you're married, you're married to one person. You're not looking around to everybody else. We are married to Christ. That's the only one we look to. Pure as virgins, the phrase means not becoming a part of the false religions of the day. How many know it's easy to get caught up in all the stuff that's in the world? We were at dinner the other day when we were with Anna's family and we had fortune cookies. Now there are people that live by those fortunes in those cookies. And some of them are, you know, they're okay, but some of them are really ridiculous. And then you have the astrology and the new age and fortune telling. And if we're not careful, because people want to know what the future is, God says, no, the only future you need to know about is right here. More often than not, what they tell you is just something that's generic or something they think you want to hear. So these are the folks that during the tribulation, when it was easy to become part of that false religion that's going on and very difficult to remain a believer because you were martyred during that time, these are the ones he says, pure as virgins, they did not become a part of that religion. They suffered, they separated themselves from the world, and they separated themselves from the apostate church that is existing at this time. The phrase, following the lamb wherever he goes, simply means they've left everything to follow Christ. And that kind of, it should symbolize us today. Have we left everything to follow Christ? It doesn't mean we sell all we have and go live on a mountain. It means everything that we have in our life comes secondary to following Christ. Is anything more important to you than your relationship to Christ? When you pray for someone to be saved, you pray whatever it takes, right? Dangerous prayer. Think about it. Even if something happens to you while you're praying it, you know, I pray, Lord, if it, if it means take my life, take it. If it means other people are gonna be saved because my short time left here is nothing compared to eternity. So I'm gonna see them again. I just won't see them here, which is totally fine with me because I'd rather see them for eternity and miss the few years here than vice versa. So we pray, God, you need to do whatever you need to do. That means you left everything. The Bible says your life is not so important as to, to shrink back from Christ. Next phrase, purchased from among the people of the earth as a special offering. This indicates that the 144,000 is symbolic of all believers because it was purchased from all the people of the earth. It wasn't the, the Jews that were selected in chapter 7. It was purchased from everyone. All the folks that got saved during the tribulation, that's who they're referring to. And 144,000 is symbolic. It's just a number that they use as fulfillment. It could be many more than that. Verse 5 says, No falsehood could be charged against them. They are blameless. Well, we're all sinners, right? And all of our sins have been forgiven. 
Hallelujah. And now you become blameless. It doesn't mean we're perfect. It means when we sin, we ask God to forgive us, 1 John 1, 9, right? The same term is used in 1 Thessalonians. It says, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're not perfect, but we're blameless. That assumes that we continue to ask God for forgiveness on a daily basis, however often we do that. If we choose not to do that, and we continue to walk away from God, and no longer follow the conviction of the Holy Spirit, then you're not going to be blameless, because you'll be continuing to live in whatever sin you're in, not confessing it and repenting before God of it. But these are the believers in the tribulation whose sins have been washed clean. And now they're blameless before God. Aren't you, aren't you glad that because of Christ you're blameless? Man, you die today, and we all are going to die with unconfessed sin. You know, if we have a heart attack right now, oh, I'm sure there's sins I've committed from the last time I asked God to forgive me until now. I'm still going to make it. Because God, God says I'm blameless because of Christ. Verses 6 and 7 says, I saw another angel flying through the heavens, carrying the everlasting good news to preach to the people who belong to this world, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Fear God, he shouted, for glory, give glory to him, for the time has come where he will sit as judge. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and all the springs of water. So this is a separate vision from the first one. He sees the, angel, or the people singing, and now he sees another angel flying through. The word and at the beginning of that sentence indicates something different from the first vision he saw. And he sees an angel. What's he doing? The angel is carrying the gospel to every living creature. Another reason to believe that the church isn't here, the church right now has, given, has been given the mission of evangelism. Our job is to preach the gospel to the world. That's our job. That's our mission while we're here. But now an angel's doing it. That must mean the church isn't going to be there to do its mission. So the angel is spreading the gospel, as the Bible says, every nation, tribe, language. The everlasting good news that they're talking about is the same gospel that we have today. There's no other gospel. What they're preaching in Revelation is the same thing we preach here. In fact, Galatians 1.8 says, Let God's curse fall on anyone including myself, who preaches any other message than the one we told you about. Even if an angel from heaven comes and preaches any other message, let him be forever cursed. I will say it again. If anyone preaches any other gospel than the one you, than you welcomed, let God's curse fall upon them. Even during the tribulation, when the church is gone and there's people who have been martyred, they're up there singing praises to God, God is still seeking people to trust him. He's spreading, he's telling, he's sending the angel around preaching the gospel to whoever's going to listen. He's giving them another opportunity to be saved. Again, the tribulation, the seven years is going to be horrific. But it's only seven years. And actually, it's only three and a half the bad stuff happens. It's only three and a half years compared to eternity. God's seeking his message is always redemptive. Now, I said this before, and I think I said it on Wednesday, most people know what Christianity is against. 
but do they know what it's for? It's easy for us to jump on the bandwagon and, and condemn this, that, and the other. Rather than focusing on what God wants to do, He wants to redeem people. He loves people. He wants to bring them into His kingdom. It's the sin that's hurting the people. Their sin and our sin always hurts us, and God wants to deliver us from that, redeem us from that. And He wants people, even during this time and in this time right now, He wants people to recognize His love, His sovereignty, and His holiness. God doesn't want us to recognize His judgment. He wants us to recognize His love for us. Think about your kids. Do you want your kids to know you because they love you or because they fear you? We want them to know us because we love them. Now, we correct them, but they shouldn't fear us. God doesn't want us to fear Him other than, the Bible says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that just means reverential trust. When your kids are fearful of what you're going to do, they know they can trust you because they know they've done bad. And how many have been there? Come on, everybody. When you got a whooping, you know you deserved it. But you know your parents didn't hate you because of it. They did it because they want to make you better. They want you to realize there's consequences for actions. Don't do it again. The Bible calls us to worship God only. The Antichrist wants worship for himself. But God is the only one worthy of worship. The Bible says God created the universe. He created us. And therefore, only he is worthy of worship. Verse 8. Then another angel followed him through the sky, shouting, Babylon is fallen. The great city is fallen. Babylon represents the religious, political, and economic systems of the world. That's what we have kind of right now. And the Bible says its collapse and destruction has already been foretold. It's going to happen. The great city, Nebuchadnezzar used that term for Babylon in Daniel verse 430. As he looked out across the city, he said, just look at what? This great city of Babylon. I, by my own mighty power, have built this beautiful city as my royal resident and as an expression of my royal splendor. Well, we all know what happened to Nebuchadnezzar for saying that, right? Turned him into a, what, a wolf or I don't know what he was. A wild beast. But just like Nebuchadnezzar says, look at this great city I built. The Antichrist is going to look at the world system and say, look at the system I built. And he's going to call people to worship him just like Nebuchadnezzar called people to worship him. And back in the day, Babylon was a great city. It was the center of commerce and religion. Just like what it represents in this philosophy, in this prophecy. The world's economic, in other words, commerce, and religious, anti-Christian, that's going to be the rule of the world during the tribulation. The world is going to control the, eco uh, the economics, and the world is going to control the religion. And Babylon is, the, is God's name for the world system of the beast. The harlot, which we'll read about later, is God's name for the apostate religions of the beast. So you have Babylon, which is the world system, and you have the harlot, which is the religious system. And when the Antichrist starts his own religion, he's going to destroy the harlot, the apostate church. And then Antichrist destroys the harlot, 
but God's going to destroy Babylon. It's the same prophecy that Isaiah gave in his time, which also foreshadowed this event in Isaiah 21.9. It says, now look at last, or now at last look. Here come the chariots and warriors. Then the watchman said, Babylon is fallen. All the idols of Babylon lie broken on the ground. Now why, again, this is in the future. This is this not happening at this particular moment. This is a vision of what's going to happen at the end. Why did it fall? Or why is it going to fall? Verse 8 says, Because she seduced the nations of the world and made them drink the wine of her passionate immorality. And the terminology here indicates a saturation, like a soaking or irrigating of crops or fields, what that term is used for. And at this point, he's saying the world has been so saturated by immorality that it brought about God's wrath. It had to bring about God's wrath. The natural result of this immersion in immorality is what brought about God's wrath in Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 18:20. So the Lord told Abraham, I heard that the people of Sodom and Gomorrah are extremely evil and that everything they do is wicked. Think of that. Everything they do, every movement they make is wicked, the Bible says. Abraham begs for innocent people. You know the story. But as he kept asking God for their safety, they couldn't even find 10 people in that town worth saving. Genesis 18, 32, Lord said, then for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. But there were less than 10. Lot got out, and then God rained down fire on the city. Genesis 19, 12, do you have any other relatives in the city? The angel asked. Get them out of this place, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone else, for we will destroy the city completely. The stench of this place has reached the Lord, and he has sent us to destroy it. The same thing that caused them to be destroyed is the same thing that's going to cause Babylon to be destroyed. The immorality of the nation at that moment. And God, is, it's just a natural consequence of sin. God it has to destroy it. It's like a cancer. You can't play with it. You can't just let it hang out. You have to kill it. You have to cut it out, all of it. And that's exactly what God's going to do to Babylon in the end. Verse 9 says, Then a third angel followed them, shouting, Anyone who worshiped the beast and his statue and who accepts a mark on his forehead or the hand must drink the wine of God's wrath. It is poured out undiluted into God's cup of wrath. The vision goes on. This is the third angel. And this message, you had the angel coming with the gospel, and now you have the angel coming with the judgment if you don't believe the first angel. And God wants everyone to hear it. We don't preach God's judgment because we encourage it or we like it. We preach it to warn. What did Tiff say? Prophecy isn't given to scare us, but to prepare us. That we need, we need to be sure we're ready for that time. The message is further warning of coming judgment, and God wants everyone to hear it. For those who have taken the mark, which taking the mark is actually submitting and worshiping the Antichrist. When you take the mark, that is your act of worship by taking that mark. If you take the mark, you're already done. Your fate is sealed. There's no, there's no recourse for you. And they will receive undiluted, in other words, full punishment of God's wrath. 
And the word wrath is not an emotional word. It doesn't indicate God is mad. It is simply evidence of God's holy and righteous judgment against sin. I've used the expression of moldy bread. You keep a piece of bread in a cupboard, in a wrapper, and in about a month it turns blue, right? And it gets all soft and nasty looking. If you put that same moldy piece of bread out in the direct sunlight, what's going to happen to the mold? It's going to just fry up and dry. Not because the sun hates the bread or hates the mold. It's just the natural consequence of leaving it in the sunlight. God's wrath is not emotional. It's just because of who God is. God, sin cannot be in God's presence. It will be destroyed because of God's presence. And he, the Bible says he takes no, no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God is not happy when wicked people die. God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. God wants everyone to come to repentance because he knows what's going to happen in the end. The angel is giving one last warning to those who are about to face God's wrath and who haven't taken the mark. So if you haven't taken the mark and you're still in the tribulation and you're still alive, the first angel is telling you about God's love. The second one is telling you about what's happening, what's going to happen if you don't take God's love now. But it seems that most people during this time aren't going to be listening to it. Verse 10 says, And they will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. Think about that statement for a minute. It's kind of disturbing. Now he's talking about hell and punishment of eternal fire. But it also says that while he's in hell receiving the punishment, he's also in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. Now it doesn't mean they're in hell with him. It means he's able to see them. The people that are burning are able to see the holy angels and the Lamb. And most take this to mean that they will be in hell, but they will be near enough to see God. They will see what they missed out on. Just like Luke 16, Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man went up in hell he could see Lazarus in heaven. Now that paradise site is now gone and that's another sermon. But it says here that the people in hell are going to be able to see those that aren't. Now it's only a one-way viewing this time because I don't believe the people in heaven can see hell. Saints in heaven aren't going to be see, able to see their loved ones. But their loved ones are going to be able to see them. And only the presence of the angels and the lambs, lamb are mentioned. People aren't even mentioned. The dead in hell can see the angels and Jesus, and they're going to see what could have been. Now, if you're living in the United States, I can't imagine that anyone living here hasn't really heard something about Christ at some point in their life. So when you're able to look at the angels and Jesus, you're going to remember when you had the opportunity. And it goes on forever. Revelation 14.11 says, The smoke of their torment rises forever and ever, and they will have no relief day or night, for they have worshipped the beast and his statue and accepted the mark of his name. Again, the reason that they're there is because they took the mark, which 
symbolizes their worship of the Antichrist. And also says that the torment is never ending. Now, I would like to believe that hell is temporary. But it's not. I would like to believe that hell annihilates you. In other words, you cease to exist at all. But it doesn't say that. It says people that were there will have no relief day or night forever and ever. And that means you're not getting prayed out. Once you're there, you're there. Now some think that hell is a purification process. Now that we spend so much time there, suffer a little bit, then you can get, get out. Well, salvation can't be through the lake of fire. Why do we need Jesus if you can get purified in the lake of fire? The Bible says there's only one way to get saved, that's through Christ. Not through hell. The verse is pretty plain. It doesn't end and there is no relief. There's no other way to heaven except through Jesus. John 14, 6, I'm sure you know it. Jesus told him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name in all of heaven for people to call on to save them. Jesus is it. I'm not it. This church isn't it. This denomination isn't it. Jesus is it. Verse 12 in Revelation, let this encourage God's holy people to endure persecution patiently and remain firm to the end, obeying his commands and trusting in Jesus. The vision is not only meant for those in the tribulation, but for everybody, all of us now, because it encourages us to stand tall if and when there are persecutions and hardships. Now, we don't really face that in this country right now, but I'm sure a lot of countries are facing it. And, he's, and the angel's telling John, look, Endure it. Patiently. Remain firm to the end. Do what he tells you to do. Trust in Jesus. And then there's going to be eternity in heaven. We always want to know when God is going to do right or wrong. When God's going to right all the wrongs in the world. And it's not going to happen yet. I wish there were. I wish God came down right now and just right every wrong. That's not when it's going to happen. So that means we have to endure patiently whatever comes our way. The Bible says God will be with you when you walk through the fire, right? Not around the fire, through it. When you walk through the waters, you're not going to be drowned, but you're going to get wet. Remain patient. Endure persecution. Remain firm to the end. It's easy to start out great for God. It's a lot more difficult to finish great for God. And he's in, he says, let this encourage God's holy people, that's us, to remain firm to the end, obeying his commands and trusting in Jesus. No matter what. And verse 13 says, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, 
Write this down. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Well, we all die in the Lord if you're a believer. This is like a footnote to John about this chapter and specifically directed to him. Remember, there's an, during this time that he's writing this in AD 95, there's intense persecution going on in John's day. And obviously, he's still around today. And it says, blessed are those who trust in the Lord until their death. It doesn't mean only from persecution. It could mean from old age. Blessed are those who die, what? In the Lord. Not, not in the Lord. But blessed are those who die knowing Christ. And it doesn't mean from persecution. It can mean from any manner of death. Dying in the Lord means you've lived to, for Christ to the very end. And specifically for those who do die in the tribulation, verse 13 concludes and says, yes, says the Spirit, they are blessed indeed, from they will, for they will rest from all their toils and trials, for the good deeds follow them. In other words, during the tribulation, when they are killed, they're going to be released from their suffering at the hands of the Antichrist. Contrast this with the eternal punishment of the world. Think about it. Suicide is rampant today. And a lot of people do it because they're, they don't think they can handle whatever situation they're in. And they think that death is ultimately better than whatever they're facing. And John's saying here, yes, not suicide, but when you're martyred, yeah, you now will be released from the pain and the suffer that you're anguishing from right now during the tribulation. The last thing I have is a quote. It says, it's better to reign with Christ forever than with the Antichrist for a few short years. Better to endure persecution patiently now than to escape it now, but suffer through eternity. And the Bible says our life is but a vapor, right? Mist, gone. And the order you get, the faster it goes. Compare that to eternity. I'll, I'll suffer now. For whatever years we got left, I'll take the suffering now because I know what's coming. And I want to endure through that because I know what's coming. And the people we pray for, we'll see them again if they know Christ. That, the Bible says, is our blessed hope. Amen. Would you stand as we close this morning? Would you bow your heads for a moment? Close your eyes. Now, we never like to talk about hell, but I think Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven. It's something that we should shun, not want to be a part of. We know our life is short here. Even at a young age, at 20, you think you're invincible. 
But before you know it, you're 50. And then you're retired. And you wonder where all that time went. And what did you do with all that time? The Bible says we can have exceeding joy during that time. And most of that is because we know what's coming when it's over. All the things we have now, they're, they're temporary. The things we had at 20 are gone, long gone now. But our relationship with Christ is forever. If you're here and you've never really accepted that in your life, you've never really believed that you're a sinner and that because of that you have no relationship with God. But the Bible says that Jesus came, he took your punishment, whatever you should have suffered, he took it for you in order that you might be saved, that you might come to a relationship with Christ. The Bible says if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved because it's through your heart that you believe in your mouth that you confess. If that's you and you want to make sure that you have a right relationship with God, you want to be sure when you walk out of this place that if you die tonight, you know where you're going to be. If that's you, I'm going to pray with you right now. Most important decision of your life. All right, I'm going to believe we're all committed followers of Christ. But Father, we do thank you. We thank you that you saved us, you brought us into your kingdom, and you've blessed us more than we deserve to be blessed. And I thank you, Lord, that we have eternity to look forward to. And I thank you that you give us the strength to go through this life. And I just pray that our lives are reflective of the gratitude that we have for you. In other words, Lord, we must, we want you to be pleased with our life. I pray that your Holy Spirit fills us every day that you give us that resurrection power every day so that everything we do throughout the day is pleasing and honoring to you. We continue to pray for those we know that don't know you and pray that you'd break through their lives and you would do whatever it takes to save them as well. Again, because we know that suffering here is short compared to suffering in eternity. So Lord, save them. Bring them into your kingdom. And Father, we will thank you right now for what you're going to do in the future. And it's in Jesus' name we ask all these things. And all of God's people shouted, Amen. 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 God bless you. Have a great week. Keep cool. I know it's hot. Don't complain about the heat.